Good afternoon, fellow directors, past presidents, members, and guests. Welcome to the 118th season of the Empire Club of Canada. My name is Kelly Jackson, and I am the president of the board of directors for the Empire Club of Canada and associate vice president at Humber College. I am your host for today's virtual event, The Future of Elder Care in Canada. I'd like to begin this afternoon with an acknowledgement that I am hosting this event within the traditional and treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit and the homelands of the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wyandotte peoples. I also want to recognize the enduring presence of all First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. In acknowledging traditional territories, I do so from a place of understanding the privilege my ancestors and I have had in this country since they first arrived here in the 1830s. Delivering a land acknowledgement for me is always an important opportunity to reflect on our human connection and our responsibility to care for the land. Today, I'm also reflecting on the stories of the land and the people who live on it. In particular, the experiences of indigenous children who were forced to attend residential schools. And many of those individuals' stories and experiences remain untold, buried with them in the land. And many survivors who have tried to tell their stories were not believed. As we work towards reconciliation, how we listen and learn from each other is so important. We encourage everyone tuning in today to learn more about the traditional territory on which you work and live. I now wanna take a moment to recognize our sponsors who generously support the Empire Club and make these events possible and complimentary for our supporters to attend. Thank you to our lead sponsor, Deloitte, who you will be hearing from after today's discussion with some closing remarks from Michael McFowl. And thank you to our seasoned sponsors, Waste Connections of Canada and the Canadian Bankers Association. Last but not least, I also want to thank our event partners, BBC and LiveMeeting.ca for webcasting today's event. I just wanna remind everyone participating today that this is an interactive event. Those attending live are encouraged to engage with our speakers by taking advantage of the question box to the right of your screen. We have a lot of time for Q&A at the end of the discussion. We also invite you to share your thoughts on social media using the hashtags, which will be displayed on the screen throughout the event. And to those watching on demand at a later date, and to those tuning in on the podcast, welcome. It is now my pleasure to call this virtual meeting to order. We're excited to bring you today's event on a topic that impacts all of us, whether today or in the future. What kind of healthcare and support do our elders need? And what do they want? With the baby boom generation recently beginning to hit retirement age, these were the kinds of questions that governments, healthcare practitioners, families, and businesses were contemplating. Cue the pandemic and the state of long-term care and options for elder care became daily headline news and a topic of conversation for all. Today, our panel picks up that conversation by looking at what changes need to be made to our healthcare system to improve the lives of Canada's elders. I will now do a brief introduction of our panelists before turning it over to them to get us right into it. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Andre Picard, Linda Knight, and Dr. Samir Sinha to the Empire Club's virtual stage. Andre Picard is the health columnist for the Globe and Mail and author of Neglected No More, The Urgent Need to Improve the Lives of Canada's Elders. He will be moderating the discussion today, and he is joined by Linda Knight, CEO of Care Partners. Starting her career as a registered, a visiting registered nurse, Linda started a health home care agency from her kitchen table in 1983. Initially servicing rural Huron County with two nurses, Linda grew Care Partners into an organization of almost 5,000 nurses, personal support workers, and therapists delivering nearly 6 million hours of service throughout Ontario. Joining Andre and Linda is Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Geriatrics at Sinai Health System and the University Health Network in Toronto, 
an associate professor of medicine at the University of Toronto and the director of health policy research at Ryerson University's National Institute on Aging. A Rhodes Scholar, Samir is highly regarded as a clinician and an international expert in the care of older adults. He was recently tapped to lead the development of new national long-term care standards for Canada. If you would like to learn more about any of our panelists today, you can find their full bios by scrolling down the video window on your screen. With that, I'd like to now turn it over to Andre. Well, thank you very much, Kelly, for that uh, kind introduction. Uh, looking forward to the panel because among other things, COVID-19 has really focused uh, our attention on the inadequate care of elders in this country. Uh, COVID-19 ravaged long-term care homes in particular. Uh, we've had roughly 25,000 pandemic deaths in Canada, and about 17,000 of those happened in these congregate settings. So elders were disproportionately affected to a very large degree. Now, out of this disaster, we've seen increasingly vocal calls for better care homes, but also for alternatives to mass institutionalization, home care, supportive housing, uh, more support for caregivers, and even changing what long-term care homes look like have all been proposed as solutions. And we're going to talk about some of those today. You know, what is the future of elder care in Canada? What should it look like ideally? How can we make life better for people that we respect, our parents and our grandparents? And as you heard, we have two very insightful and experienced care providers here to help us understand the problems and mostly to help us understand the solutions. So I'm gonna kick off the discussion with some questions. As you heard, we welcome your questions. Uh, I'm gonna get them uh, as we go along. I'll multitask and I'll try and incorporate your questions into the conversation. So with it, without further ado, let me turn to our experts. Uh, Linda, I thought, I'd, I'd, I, thought with, I would start with you. We heard in your very short bio there that you have a, a lot of experience. You started out in this field uh, uh, quite a few years ago as a nurse, uh, you worked for the ministry, you became an entrepreneur. So I thought with your historical perspective, you could start us off by helping us understand where did things go so terribly wrong that we got to this point where thousands of elders died, that tens of thousands are on wait lists. Where did things go off the rails? Um, thanks, Andre. Um, well, first of all, <laughs> You know, I have been in the sector for over 40 years, and it's been, um, you know, an interesting journey um, through um, various governments and various approaches. And I, you know, we've got probably a, a bunch of binders on uh, shelves of different different uh, groups that have tried to um, help the system for sure. Um, I would say, you know, things managed fairly well. Certainly, from my perspective, we were able to get staff um, probably. PSWs, we started to have a problem about four years ago that all of a sudden there was fewer and fewer PSWs that are available. A lot of reasons for that. One of them is, um, you know, we haven't been able to keep up in home care with some of the wages. So some of uh, some of the things that have happened to us, if a Costco comes into an area, we're constantly worried. Um, we have PSWs that it's a very, it's a tough job. It's, um, you know, a lot of heavy lifting. It's a lot of, um, um, you know, sending odd hours. Um, if I was to kind of list the things that have caused a shortage of PSWs in, in the sector, I would say it has to do with wages, um, the schedule, which is difficult. And I just want to talk to you a little bit about that. Um, we've got, we cover, you know, both rural and urban. So we go from Thunder Bay to Windsor and we've got some towns that only have four PSWs. And so we might need them in the morning, but then in the evening, again, we need them, but there's a, a slow part through the day. And that's very difficult for them to, for employment, for consistency. Um, so I turnover has been very, very high in the PSW world. Um, wages, schedule, um, what I hear from the PSWs is what we're about is we want time with our patients and anytime you know the system which includes us um, messes with that time gives us less time with the patient it makes it that it's not what we're in this industry or not what we're, we're here for so that becomes difficult they truly are the heroes in the home and I and I call it a, a, a silent army um, there's 60,000 people working in home care right now very quietly um, we have no walls um, and so we just keep trying to, to deliver care in all sorts of circumstances. Some of the homes are not ideal. Sometimes there's pets. Sometimes there's, you know, there's a lot of challenges. So I would say the PSW shortage hit us about four or five years ago. 
But what also has come quickly behind that is the nursing shortage in home care. And same thing, um, nursing in home care is very, very challenging. I find nurses um, um, tend to really like it. It's a very much a one-to-one -one type of industry. They're the last generalists, um, but we've lost pace with, um, with, fund in, with, with being able to pay them what they could make in a hospital. So there's been unintended consequences. Um, uh, you know, just COVID, for example, we cover a rural um, area where we had 30 nurses. And um, when COVID hit, seven went to work for public health. And, you know, that is a huge hit when you have 30 nurses and then we're scrambling. So we're, you know, all the companies are into overtime. Um, that's, so the challenge has just been the shortage that has hit us and hit us hard. And, I, you know, as I said, I've been in the sector for 40 years and I've never seen such a shortage. Um, and so we, we definitely need to figure a solution, an HHR solution. Yeah, so I'm hearing pretty fundamental structural issues, staffing, uh, funding, policy choices, uh, lack of time for people to care. So there's a lot of, a lot of meat for us to discuss, uh, to unravel in the next hour. So we'll do that. Uh, Samir, I wanted to talk, to, to turn to you again, starting with a pretty fundamental policy question. You know, we see uh, polls time and time again saying that elders want to remain in the community. They want their independence but everything in the system funnels them to these institutions. So why, why isn't this a political priority to essentially do what people want, uh, to do what's cheaper, what's better? What, what, where's the disconnect there? Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of these kind of real weird policy conundrums because uh, when I was tasked with uh, developing Ontario's senior strategy back in 2012, you know, I would do this uh, party trick that I would do in the room today um, if we were all together in one room where I'd say, please raise your hand if you aspire to end up in a long-term care home. Um, and of course, nobody would raise their hand or somebody might mistakenly be scratching their hair, uh, their head. Um, and then they quickly lower their hand when they realize what the question was, because again, it's not disparaging our long-term care homes and the people who work there and the people who need to be there. We absolutely need to have a strong long-term care home system for those people who absolutely need that level of care and they need a good level of care. But fundamentally, you know, if you ask any Ontarian, and especially during this pandemic with the horrors that actually happened in our care homes, we now have seen shifts where 70% of older, older people and 60% of Canadians in general are now saying through one of our NIA reports that uh, one, of, one of our surveys that they have now reconsidered whether they'd ever want to age in a long-term care or retirement home. Um, there have been fundamental shifts. And we had another survey we did with the Canadian Medical Association back in, in February, where basically 97% of older Canadians are saying that they would do everything humanly possible to remain in their own homes for as long as possible. So this is not about 51 versus 49%. As you said, time and time again, this is what people are saying they want. However, this is also what, what Linda's talking about in terms of the care that we can provide in people's homes. Again, you don't have infrastructure costs associated with delivering home care. People have their own homes. They have their own beds. It's where they want to be. And actually, you could be much more efficient in deploying care into people's homes um, without having to worry about the infrastructure costs, um, worries about uh, infectious disease and other things. So I've always reminded people that when you look at how other countries have structured their publicly funded long-term care systems, for example, there's a much heavier emphasis around providing care for people in their homes for as long as possible because it's far cheaper to do that. And it's actually the preference of people. So I always remind people, this is the rare policy opportunity where what people actually want is what's actually cheaper for taxpayers to deliver. It's a win, win, win. But I do think that there are always forces at play. Um, you know, you always have um, some organizations, for example, that uh, that might have better ear of government. You know, I think politicians love to do ribbon cuttings and they love to, you know, open a shiny new home with shiny new beds and say, this is how we're solving the elder care crisis. We're building this institution. And I think for a lot of people, I think they've just thought, well, that must be the right way. But I think when people are realizing it's actually cheaper and safer to receive care in your own home, in many cases, and often more preferential for people as well. Um, I think slowly but surely people are now coming to understand the opportunities here. And I think it's harder to ignore, um, especially on a policy lens, uh, where we need to be heading moving forward. 
I want you to flesh out the money question a bit because I'm sure a lot of audience members are surprised to hear it's cheaper because every discussion of home care seems to begin with, we'd love to do it, but it's too costly. So convince our audience that it actually is cheaper. Yeah, so I so I wrote a, a a policy paper on this. It's actually one that I actually produced for the Premier's office and the Minister of Health and the Minister of Long Term Care of, right before the pandemic. Um, and it was really it was and it was basically entitled "Bringing Long Term Care Home." And it was really focusing on the Ontario situation because if we think about it right now, um, right now we currently have about thirty nine thousand Ontarians who are on the long term care wait list. Uh, for example, so these are people waiting to get into a nursing home. And right now, our current government has come to power basically saying they plan to build 30,000 new beds. But we also have another 30,000 out of the existing 79,000 beds that are built to 1972 design standards and need to be rebuilt. And so just if you do the math alone on what it would cost to rebuild 30,000 beds and build 30,000 new beds, we're talking about between 12 to $16 billion. That's just to build the infrastructure there. Right. So when we talk about home care, we don't again, Linda is not factoring in infrastructure costs, for example, um, in terms of we need to build, you know, new HVAC systems and we need to build new buildings. You know, generally people who are receiving home care are lucky enough to have a home and a bed. Um, and sometimes there might be equipment that needs to be done, but even that equipment can be recycled and reused, you know, in, in other ways. So. A, when you think about home care versus long-term care, you think about the infrastructure costs. And that's something we don't often talk about. But then we also talk about the cost of just providing care to someone who's in a long-term care home. And when you think about the facility costs that are associated, like the construction, you then think about the operation aspects, the housekeeping, all of those other things, plus the care itself, you know, that starts adding up to about $200 a day. Um, and there's a co-payment in Ontario, for example, where people are asked to contribute to their own costs. But we know one in three Ontarians can't even afford the co-payment that the ministry would expect them to pay. So often we're subsidizing, you know, that industrial complex, if you will. When you talk about home and community care, the province itself, the Ministry of Health actually says to provide a person who is eligible for long-term care home care in their own homes, it's about $103 a day, about half the cost. It costs the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Long-Term Care to provide care for an Ontarian in a long-term care home. And that's by providing, you know, again, you know, more care on average than the average home care recipient will require, because some people only need a visit a few times a week. But we're talking about people who might need a few hours of care a day. And the ministry, our own government, says it's about half the cost of providing care for a person in a long-term care home. So the math doesn't lie. It's been there. I've written a wonderful thing where you can see everything all laid out there so that you can, if a number of crunchers out there don't believe me. Um, it's all laid out there. But again, it comes back to your fundamental question. So if the math doesn't lie and the people are saying this is clearly what they want, then why aren't we seeing a massive sea change to correct some of these issues that are making it hard for folks like Linda um, and her colleagues to deliver excellent, high-quality home care, which is what Ontarians overwhelmingly want? Right. And that was pretty convincing to me. So we'll, uh, we'll see how the audience uh, reacts to that one in the questions. Now, Linda, I wonder, you know, one of the things I hear a lot from families, one of the most frequent complaints is they say, the system is so complicated. It's so hard to just get the things that I want. Why, why is it so complicated to provide elders with care? It seems pretty basic to figure out what they need and to, to provide it. What, what's the, the hiccup there? Um. Well, you know, I think that that all of the providers that are out there, and there are many of us that are trying to, de to deliver care, we all have a contract with um, with the community um, home and community services, which is the new name um, that used to be the Lynn. And I will tell you, they've done an excellent job at trying to um, think outside the box, deliver um, services in shifts. Um, we're we're in a system that's just in time, basically. So we have no surge capacity. Like if we if we don't send a PSW or a nurse out for a visit or a therapist, um, then you know we're we're not paid. They're not paid. And so we've got this kind of a model that is has basically absolutely no surge capacity. So that that's a huge problem. Like even when COVID first hit, many patients said, "I don't want anybody to come to the house." And then we also added into that many 
many PSWs that had childcare issues and they needed to stay home. So all of a sudden we had a huge dip in volume. Um, it, it's just a difficult thing to manage in terms of, of capacity. Um, in terms of very different in home care, we don't have full shifts um, paid. Now I will say, as I said, um, that the um, the provincial government and the what used to be the Lynn and home community care are definitely trying to come up with new models to help us with that. Um, you know, so basically I'll tell you in my world what would happen. It's uh, six o'clock in the morning and we've, we're planning to send PSWs out to a home or, or nurses and, you know, 10 call in sick say for, and they're very legitimate. I'm not saying there's any problem. Well, we scramble then to try and find somebody who has some capacity to pick up that patient so that we can deliver the care. So, so it's a, it's a challenge when we're delivering service to, you know, 60,000, you know, home, like homes all over the place and trying to make sure, okay, somebody called in sick here. How are we going to, how are we going to get somebody there? So, and, you know, I will say we have created a bit of a system where, we're doing the scheduling. Um, there's an authorization through home and community care. Um, so it, it's not a simple system to navigate. I do understand that. However, I do think we could do better um, with, you know, years ago, they had a program called a frail elderly program where the patients could be kept on, you know, as needed. So to, you know, to your point, Samir, you know, sometimes the patients are coping very, very well and they don't need it, but maybe instead of us discharging them from the program, we just hold them. And then when they, if they need, rather than have to go to emerge, rather than have to somehow, you know, access a congregate care setting, maybe they could just directly contact their home care provider to have someone come out in an emergent, more of a, you know, urgent situation. Again, it all goes back to making sure we have enough staff to deliver on that. But, you know, I would say, I understand what the patients are saying in terms of um, the various, you know, loop hoops, I guess, that they have to go through. And when you use terms like uh, just in time, makes it sound very industrial assembly line type care. That's another complaint I hear. This is not person-centered, family-centered care by, that I'm hearing. Well, we definitely want it to be. I think our funding model um, maybe needs to change because, uh, you know, if we hire a PSW and she doesn't have any work for three days, we're going to lose her very quickly. Um, same thing with a nurse. So, um, you know, I think there's opportunities for us to improve that, that we sort of have guaranteed hours that we can provide service and we can maybe recruit and re retain the staff. So I do think there's some potential there for that to get better. Right. Now, we already have a lot of good questions rolling in, so I'm going to throw one of them right to you, Samir. Uh, it's about caregivers. Someone's noting, you know, we have two care providers on the panel. We don't have a caregiver who do the bulk of the work. What can we do to make their lives better to ensure that they, because they, people, you know, my experience is most people can deliver this care lovingly and willingly, but they're just overwhelmed. So how, can, how can we help them out? Yeah, like we're we basically set up a system to fail. This is this is the problem that we're talking about here. A, um, it's quite mysterious as to kind of what services are out there and what you can rely on. We don't have a clear social contract in Canada or you know in Ontario saying that if you need supports, you know if you're a family caregiver wanting to provide support to a loved one at home. Or if you're, or if you're just an older person who might think that I need some support or help with everything from snow shoveling to um, helping to take a bath, whatever that might be, we don't make it clear for people to be able to go to one point um, to understand what is actually available in their area, how to access it. And the challenge is when you think about seniors in Ontario or care related to older people, it's divided between the Ministry of Seniors, which is the Ministry of Retirement Homes and Seniors, um, things to help, you know, keep age-friendly communities and things. You then have the Ministry of Nursing Homes or the Ministry of Long-Term Care. You then have the Ministry of Health. And then there's also the Ministry of Community and Social Services. So you have all of the siloed across different groups. And then, then you start thinking about, so how does anybody navigate what they want? Because as, you know, as Linda was just articulating, when it comes to home care services, well, home care will care navigate home care, whatever is available in your area, but not community support services like day programs, meals on wheels, other things. So all of a sudden, it really leaves older people and their family caregivers a real tough time to scramble. When you actually look at the care that someone living at home is receiving, 
often upwards of 70 to 90% of the care that that person is receiving in their own homes is coming from an unpaid family caregiver. They're often suffering in silence. They're often, especially if you're caring for someone with dementia, it's not a two to three hour task. It's basically a 24 seven experience, for example. And we do know favors by making sure that those individuals don't get extra hours of support um, available to them, not just for those tasks like bathing, but for giving them a break or making sure that they're aware of new financial supports like the Canada caregiver credit that actually exists for unpaid caregivers. We do a lot of disservice for them um, and, and for the older folks. So the things that we're trying to do that I've been emphasizing since I wrote my report in 2012, which was the first time we started thinking about caregivers in a meaningful way is saying, number one is we need to actually create more community resources and programming to give caregivers a break. Things like adult day programs, you know, kind of what we call daycare for an older person, for example, that gives that loved one a break, allows them to go to work, for example. Also, more hours of care that can be provided um, so that that caregiver can take a break or it can at least not feel too overwhelmed with the tasks their loved one needs. And then third is making sure that we provide education and financial supports, because a lot of caregivers often just don't have some basic information of how do I manage with a person with dementia? I don't have professional training, but I want to do my best. And then how do we make sure that when the average family caregiver is spending about $3,500 of their own money every year to provide unpaid care for a loved one, that, that be it a family member or friend, how do we make sure that they have some of those financial supports? We've made progress, but most people don't even know about the Canada Caregiver Credit that we pushed through in 2017. And so these are, the, these are some of the challenges that make it even more complicated when we're not even supporting the family caregivers beyond the 60,000 people working in our home care sector today. Great. And just to give the audience some, some context, there's about 7.8 million Canadians who provide care to a loved one. 780,000 of them provide more than 50 hours of care weekly. It's essentially a, a full-time unpaid job. And, you know, we have to say out loud, predominantly women uh, caring for older loved ones, and often they have children as well. So that sandwich generation is really, really impacted by this, these uh, lacks in, in our elder care system. And if I can, if I can just interrupt the one yeah. extra fun fact here, Andre, that if anybody thinks that, okay, fine, let's not rebuild our home care system, but let's just rely on those family caregivers and that goodwill. Here's a fun fact. Over the next 30 years, we're going to have one third fewer available family caregivers to meet the needs of our aging population. So that is not a clear source of care. We have to think about how we're going to manage that gap with declining fertility rates um, and other challenges as well. Yeah, that is an interesting fact. I'm not sure I'd put it in the fun category, but uh, we'll, we'll put, it, put it in the fact category. Uh, now, Linda, follow-up question to the one. There's a lot of questions coming in about caregivers, and maybe you could help us out. A lot of people are interested in just the practical. What, what is available? Where do you go to help, uh, get help? Uh, how do you navigate this system? Can you give people some tips uh, where, to, where to go? Well, you know, in Ontario, we have a we have two systems. We have the family funded system, and there are multiple providers of that um, of that service. We have tended to be public service contracts through the um, Home and Community Care Services Group, um, and so the calling them would be what used to be the local LIN, which would be your a good start if you feel that you could you could use some additional services. Um, I, I wanted to piggyback a little bit onto um, your comment around what the patients need, and and I and I would be remiss in not commenting on palliative care. So if you were to ask most people in Ontario or in Canada, who wants to die at home, a very, very large percentage of them would say that they would. Um, the problem is, and my mom died at 56, so I was part of that as my family. It's very, very hard. At the very end, um, you're awake all night. It's a, ter you know, it's a tough go. And so some of the programs that have been brought forward and the ministry's approved, it's been, they've been very, very good is, um, is e-home care where we have specially trained EPS, PSWs that are paid a full shift so the family can sleep. And so um, it's been a huge, huge success. The family say, I feel like I have wings because I got some sleep last night and then through the day visiting nurses come and go. So there are innovative programs that are coming about. Now, one of the key factors that we found was successful is we're paying that PSW whether the shift is needed or not. 
And all of a sudden we can get them, we can keep them, we can hold them, they're highly skilled, you know, they can count on that income. So there are some things that we are doing and that would all be available, um, you know, depending on the region through the um, community's um, home care services. So, and, and as you speak of the PSWs, I'm reminded of there's a, a saying in the sector that, you know, the quality of care uh, is the, you know, the quality of the work environment reflects the quality of care. So we have to treat the workers well, paying them for their shifts properly, et cetera. That's the only way we're going to get decent care. Yes, for sure. I, they are the true heroes. And um, I know many, um, many places have heroes in the home program and it's been a one, it's just, um, really gives you, warms your heart to understand what they're doing every day. And I will say that we cannot underestimate the relationship between the PSW and the family or the nurse and the, and the therapist and the family. Many of them are very, very close. They're allowed into their home as a guest. It's very intimate relationship. And so um, that's a huge part of, um, of, of home care for sure. And Samir, another question is coming back. Uh, uh, you noted in passing, you know, you're not bad-mouthing long-term care homes. And someone is saying, well, how do you balance that if you have a loved one? How do you balance the desire to stay at home, but the, the dangers of isolation and loneliness? Uh, a lot of people like the, home, the, the long-term care setting because they do have people around them. Uh, they have activities, et cetera. How do you find that balance? Uh, and we saw, again, we saw the impact of isolation during COVID, of course, as well. So how, how do we find that balance? Yeah, I think, I think it's, again, I think we have to think about this as a continuum of care, right? So we have to think about people who want to, you know, age well and independent for as long as possible. So there are many things that we can do to help people stay healthy and independent in their communities. And, and this is even an aspect we call preventative home care, you know, things that we can do um, to support people so that they, they don't actually face frailty earlier on and then become more isolated in their communities. And then you think about the things that we can do to support people in their own home and their communities to stay connected. But there certainly are, you know, multiple times when I'm working with a family and I say, this is now when we need to look at a long-term care home. And it could be due to severe isolation or loneliness. Um, it could be just due to the care needs are just overwhelming, too overwhelming for the family and for what, you know, government supports can provide. So I think that, you know, the danger that we have or that we've developed in places like Ontario in particular and, and around the country too, is we have systems that are not thought of as a continuum, but rather piecemeal. And so, you know, to, to Linda's point is that why, you know, why do we not have these staffing, acute staffing issues? Why aren't we hearing about this in hospitals, you know, um, versus why are we hearing a crisis that's happening in, in, um, in home care, for example? Part of it is because we're not thinking this of a continuum and thinking about a nurse as a nurse as a nurse, a PSW as a PSW. I have this line that basically is the further you walk away from any hospital in Ontario, you know, the further you walk into the community, into a person's home, um, the lower your pay actually gets. So, there's a ladder. If you get an entry-level job as a PSW, only like five or six years ago, it was $12 an hour. And this is often caring for people who are living with dementia, have significant physical limitations, and other supports. This is expert skilled work. This is work that I really deeply respect because this is not easy work to be done. Yet, you know, now we have this kind of minimum wage, you know, set at $16 an hour, just so people understand these numbers uh, for folks. And this PSW wage increase right now, which the government in Ontario said, you know, I love PSWs and I'm for it and I'm going to make sure this happens. And then the premier's office walked it back and said, you know, our premier's committed to this idea, but not necessarily committed to making it happen just yet. But stay tuned. You know, the, the challenge with this is that we're talking about paying people significantly less than they would make in a long-term care home or even better in a hospital. And just to give people an example of this, I have this incredible caregiver who's been working full-time 24 seven with a couple that I've been caring for for years with dementia. And I remember broke my heart a year ago when after one of the couples had died and he, you know, he's committed to staying and caring for the other one until she passes on. But he said, you know, Dr. Sinna, he waited till she left, um, you know, the daughter and, and the patient had left the room. And then he held back and he said, Dr. Sinna, I know that she's not going to live forever, but I'm hoping that after she passes, you would help put a recommendation for me to get a job at your hospital as a cleaner. Do you know how that breaks my heart that this person's aspiring as an incredible 
personal support worker to work as a cleaner, it just really gives you a sense about how we don't think of this as a continuum and how we really need to think about if we have things like wage parity, which has been done in other provinces, you don't have this thing where people are looking for different things. And then number two, you give stability of employment, you know, that dignity of respect and work for these jobs. Um, and that would go a long way to stabilizing our home care system and then allowing people to understand that we're making decisions not based on a shortage of care that forces people to go into a long-term care home. Because right now, while we have over 50,000 Canadians on wait lists for long-term care homes, we have another 430,000 who report having unmet home care needs. You don't have to be a rocket science to say, if we can't meet your needs in the home, you're gonna force a disproportionate people to go prematurely into long-term care. So that's where I always think of it as a continuum. And knowing that there are times when it's much more appropriate to have someone in a home versus in their own home. But again, we're not really giving people and care providers and families the opportunities to really kind of manage things in the best way possible. Yeah, and I like that you pointed out this is uh, low paid work. It's not low skilled work. Uh, I think right. uh, anyone who has ever tried to bathe a loved one with dementia suddenly really appreciates PSWs, just how, how difficult that work is. And now, also, Linda, I think we have a lot of people who have recognized you have a lot of insider knowledge, so they're asking some fairly technical questions, but I'll <laughs> them your way. Uh, okay. Someone's asking, who, who exactly decides how much home care you get? What's appropriate? Uh, the caps? Uh, how much respite care? Who, who makes all these really life-changing decisions uh, uh, invisibly? Well, the Home and Community Care um, program, um, which is government funded, um, they have a care coordinator that usually does the assessment and comes up with the with the plan. Um, I will say, you know, it, it's a conversation. We sometimes, and I know that there's a, a, a movement afoot to kind of eliminate all these caps and that kind of thing, but there, it is something where we, if we needed extra visits, we would talk to the care coordinator and we'd ask if we could have more, um, more visits as, as needed. Um, I will say to pick up on your point, uh, Sina, the last comment, we just recently hired somebody that came from the UK and they were saying, you know, we're puzzled by, or he was saying to me that we're puzzled by this because why, why in, in the, in the UK, a, a nurse that works in the community is more valued because they have no one down the hall to ask. They're working independently. You know, they're having to make decisions without supervision, you know, and, and so there was a surprise that, that there's a difference here in Canada. And I would agree with you that these are highly, highly skilled. Like we're talking nurses and therapists and at the top of their game, nurses that are running pain pumps, central lines, all of that. So it is unfortunate. And I would, I, you know, would hope that they would make a decision based on where they want to work, not what they're paid. Right. And so and that's that's what we have to fix, I think, for sure. And I'll throw another one your way uh, while I have you, Linda. Someone's asking, how, how did home care cope with COVID-19? Did you how did you do it safely? Did you stop? What, what happened during COVID? We heard a lot about the long term care homes, but yeah. nothing about home care. Well, I will say um, to the credit of, of everyone that's delivering home care, we survived, you know, the very best we could. We had um, we had a dip in our volume, which caused us a bit of a challenge. Um, it, I remember someone from one of the hospitals saying it's a hundred times safer to be at home than it was in any other congregate setting. Um, and I, I think the statistics bear that out that people survived through COVID at home, um, Samir, with with home care much, much safer than they were in any other facility. So staff have slowly been coming back. It's been a, a slow, slow grind. Um, um, we've, we have a very high vaccination rate. Um, I think ours last one was over, it was at 80%. That was our target. We were getting, we're, we're almost there or we're there. So, and the patients are very happily opening up and, you know, let's, let's get back to some, some sort of normal. We did have a challenge, I will say, um, with, there was a, um, a regulation that came in that you couldn't work in more than one facility. And we have some PSWs that work for us. They also work for a long-term care facility. They had to choose. So then, you know, if they went to the long-term care facility, we were short staffed. And so we're still recovering from that um, to try to get the, to get staff back. Um, so, so I will say um, in general, and um, Samir, maybe you could comment on what you're found with your patients, but anyone that was receiving home care, I think um, has slowly been getting back to normal in a very safe way. Yeah. And, and just a few quick observations. I think, and it was quite 
uh, fascinating to see that I think people were just utterly terrified at the beginning of this. So what we really saw was I had a number of patients who basically just canceled their home care services. They said, I'm hunkering down. We're going to try and figure this out. And of course, that that created additional burden for family members. And some family members said, we're okay with this because I actually just lost my job or I'm now working from home. So it was a huge shift for this. And then it's just as Linda was saying, you then also had all these new positions in public health, in hospitals, vaccine clinics. So all of a sudden people said, wait a minute, you know, hospitals are desperate to hire people and pay premium rates to work in the ICU. I'm, I'm just going to leave my role in home care and go and do that. So, so a huge amount of changes. But what we also saw was a huge number of people. Um, one of the things that I worked with the Ministry of Long-Term Care on was a, a regulation um, back on March 24th of last year that allowed people, uh, families to say, um, if, my, uh, if an offer of a bed comes up in a long-term care home, do I have to take it? The, the system used to say that if your number came up and you said no, you were struck off the list and you'd start again. Now people were given the opportunity to say, I can hold off a little bit longer and I want to stay at home. And what I saw is a huge number of, of patients of mine um, and folks um, in our home-based primary care program who were actually electing um, to stay out of their long-term care home uh, opportunities for a lot longer or even cancel their applications. And that actually made the, the complexity that was being seen in the home even greater for uh, providers and families to be able to meet, but it was because they were doing it because they want to stay safer in their own homes, just given what we were seeing in long-term care. So it's challenging. And, and just to the, answer the other question there, how does, how does home care funding you know, get allocated? Well, there is a, a standard assessment that anybody getting home care or long-term care is actually done. These are what care coordinators will do. But then you have a funding postcode lottery because in our 14 old Lynn regions, for example, you had differential home care budgets. It's not the same budget allocated per person in Ontario. So you have some regions in Ontario that are funded 27% below the average. You have other regions that are funded 27% above the average. And then basically you allocate that budget, you ration it based on what's available. So I have, you know, you know, if you look in in Toronto, um, in the in the neighborhood of Etobicoke, for example, there is this intersection where there are four different regions that come and meet at that intersection, and the same client will get four different levels of service based on what that regional budget actually looks like. So there is not a standardized way across Ontario. There's a standard way of assessing, but that doesn't mean that there's a standard way of giving people the same amount of care, depending on what they live. And as Linda will say, it also depends on whether we even have the workers in the first place who can even fulfill those needs. So it is, there's just a lot of fundamental system issues that need to be corrected um, if we're actually gonna have a real functioning um, and uh, forward-looking home care system in Ontario. And frankly, these are similar issues across the country as well. And uh, we have a big audience and they seem to have, have a lot of questions, really practical questions. So I want to throw this one to you, uh, Samir, if I could. Uh, someone's noting that, you know, these decisions that have to be made often happen in a time of crisis. You know, somebody has a fall or a heart attack or whatever. Someone's asking, can you give some practical advice on how can a family be prepared for, for the crisis, which will almost invariably come as someone gets older? What, what, how can you be prepared? No, it's a great question, right? Because I think none of us really like to think about getting older or, or those less glamorous things about the possibility of having a fall or the, or the possibility of actually needing care. And the good news is most of us are going to live, you know, long periods of, of our older, of our, our, of our older age, you know, kind of in relatively good health and independently. But we all have to think about, well, what happens if I get dementia, for example? What happens if I start having, you know, physical limitations that mean I need to be dependent on others. Most families just don't want to have that conversation. So what I usually do is when I have a new patient, you know, in my, in my geriatrics practice, you know, I have these conversations, like, what do you want the future to look like? What's the game plan? What are we thinking about? Most of the time, family members will say, well, I have a plot at the Mount Pleasant. And I'm like, I don't care about who gets what after you die or what happens after you cross the finish line or where you're going to be buried or cremated. I want to know what the last hundred yards could look like. What would you want? Where would you want to receive that care? Do you have family members or friends who would step up and willing to provide? And I always say, I always, I think you wrote about this in your book, my magic formula when I diagnose a family with dementia is I, I run this formula in my head, basically saying, 
how much money do you personally have? And, and, and do you have a family? Because frankly, if you don't have money and you don't have a family and you're just relying on what government supports are, you're kind of living at, at, at the mercy of what the system can do. So by actually thinking about things in the future, what do you want your care to look like? What is actually practical? What is reasonable? I think that's when people start having those important conversations that can allow them to say, okay, this is what mom would want. This is what we're going to do with the resources. And also it's that opportunity to start looking around one's neighborhood and saying, what does the home care service provide? What does that look like? What are the local community agencies providing? What could that look like? How could I support that out? But I find most people don't actually think about the future. They don't want to. It's not a pleasant thing to think about. But I find, I always say to my patients, you know, a great, you know, a great deal defense is a good offense. When we actually think this through, when we think about what the future could look like, it makes it much easier for me as the care provider and the family, and frankly, my patients to actually say, right, we talked about this. This is where we, we enact stage two or this plan, and this is how we actually do that. So, so I think it really starts by having that conversation getting to understand the resources that might be available, what are the qualifying criteria, what that looks like. Because I think just having that, 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 that understanding or that reasoning in those conversations allows people to not be acting purely in crisis mode because when things go bad, they go bad really quickly. Um, and, and frankly, it's just, it's, you know, it's not a pleasant situation to be in where people are then making decisions, as you said, in a state of crisis, as opposed to, thinking proactively and feeling much more certain about, we thought about this, okay, and this is what we're going to do now. Yeah, in my book, I quote someone as saying, the most important conversations we can have about aging are take place around the kitchen table, just getting a sense of what, what you really want. And it's, I know as a, as a former family member, it's a tremendous burden to try and guess what your parents wanted. Uh, it's so much easier to just have them tell you. So uh, those are really important conversations. Uh, Linda, another tough uh, practical question from our audience. They're asking, at what point do you say or do you know that people... Uh, home care can't do it for you anymore. You have to go to a home. How do you, how do you know, and how do you have that tough conversation with a family who doesn't necessarily want to hear that? Um, well, that's a that's something that we really try to um, to not have. That it, usually they end up going into probably into hospital. I would say Samira, and then from there they get placed. Um, um, but I will say, you know, one corollary positive of COVID. Um, I have a son that happens to be in real estate, and he said they've never had so many requests for a nanny suite. So you know, home care. If someone needs twenty four seven. Um, home care isn't going to be able to provide that. It, we, we just can't, you know, um, we don't have the staff and then the costs become prohibitive. But if you've got a family that's willing to um, support or have, you know, have a mom or dad, you know, live with them at night, there's somebody there. And I think that's coming around. Like, I think Canada hasn't really been there, but, but other countries are. And I think that might be what we need to start looking at is how can we support, you know, certainly the area that I service, we have lots of, um, of um, Mennonite or Amish, and it's very common in their culture that that's what they do. And I think, I think that's what we're going to have to start looking at as a, as a society. How are we going to support the elderly? at home um, with us because it's not been something we've been doing. Yeah, I think it's a good reminder what you're saying that aging in place, we talk about that, but it means a lot of things. It means changing building rules. It means changing how we build cities, uh, sidewalks being cleared. There's all a, a lot of banal little things that uh, decide that people go into care homes that could be, could be dealt with otherwise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Samir, on a similar question uh, along those lines, uh, you know, people are wondering, you feel terrible guilt when your loved one goes into a long-term care home, but sometimes it's necessary. So how can you, how can a family decide, I have to do this now, even though I'm going to have this crushing guilt? Yeah, no, often I have these really difficult conversations with families, you know, and and preferably I would say, I want to have this conversation with you you know, in your own home or you in your, in, in, you know, in my office and not, you know, in the emergency department and not on an inpatient ward when everything has really kind of fallen apart. Um, and often, you know, again, that's that, 
the idea of a good offense is a great defense. It's the idea that we start that narrative early on. What do you want care to look like? What would make sense? Because, you know, often it was interesting when we did the survey, you know, back in 2012 for the Ontario strategy, um, we actually surveyed thousands of caregivers and thousands of older adults. And it was fascinating to see a disconnect. You know, a lot of older people who are frail were like, yeah, things aren't going well, but you know, you know, my partner is going to look after me and, and my daughter is going to do this and they're going to be able to do that. And when you actually ask the caregiver, you know, what do they think? They're like, yeah, I, I you know, what they think I can do is not what's humanly possible. So sometimes there's actually that disconnect. And so often what I try and kind of I, and I have these conversations all the time, you know, where I have someone who says, I want to stay at home. I want to die at home. And I said, well, let's look at the reality of this right now. You don't actually have any family members. You have a friend who lives in the apartment two doors down who's happy to check on you once a day and government funded home care is going to give you a maximum of three hours a day i might get four for you but what do we do for the other 20 hours and 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 you know this is where i'm that arbiter where i say you know what i know this is what you want i know this is what you value and what we would all want but the system isn't designed to do that and unless you can find me a million dollars to actually fund you know what you want here privately or you want you know or or you or the system's going to rapidly change overnight it's just unfortunately not what we can do and sometimes i have a different conversation where i have family members who literally are killing themselves providing that 24/7 care to a point where they're losing jobs because they can't concentrate at work anymore. They have to balance one or the other, or literally they're getting sick and ill. And I'm actually worried more about the caregiver than I am the patient because I feel you know, the, you know, the caregiver is going to be the patient and then what's going to happen to their loved one. And so often I will have these difficult conversations where I remind people that, you know what, you can no longer be the daughter or son to your loved one. You're now basically a full-time care aide on top of what home care can provide and it's going to kill you. And it's actually going to worsen the care, the, the outcomes of your loved one as well. And so in some of these situations where we've really had frank, helpful conversations to say, what can we do and what makes sense? Uh, it's been amazing where months after we transitioned their loved one to a long-term care home, I remember I had this one um, lovely woman who came and saw me and said, you know what, we took your advice, we, we got mom into the home, which is just in the neighborhood, I now can go to work every day, I know that she's receiving great care. And you know what? Every evening I go by and I comb her hair and we just have time and I can now be her daughter once again. And I'm no longer stressed, you know, at the level I was and my health is improving as well. So it's it's really about trying to understand the entire like I don't just have a patient, I have a family in a situation. And how do we manage it to think about the well-being of everybody involved? But these are really difficult and nuanced situations. I always say if you have one older patient, you have one older patient. No family is exactly the same. Some of the themes are similar, but every situation is unique. And that's why that that planning in advance um, and having those conversations allows everybody to be in a more realistic note to figure out what works well and, and what you can do um, and, and what you can't do. And, and when you have to kind of make those decisions that sometimes are not necessarily what you want, but is the most practical way to move forward. And I noticed, you know, you said you, you asked the question, do you have a million dollars? I just note you're not exaggerating. Mm -hmm. I have a story in the book of someone who, who did spend more than a million dollars uh, caring for a loved one with home care. Uh, it adds up really quickly. Long-term care can be anywhere 3000 to $15,000 a month. People don't think of the, the financial cost of this, and it's quite, quite tremendous. And so, Linda, another question uh, for you. Uh, someone's asking, you know, you talked about the importance of people in home care, and that's essential. But what about technology? Are we making adequate use of technology to, to make it easier for the workers and for caregivers to care and to keep people at home? I would say another side benefit of, of COVID, if there's anything, um, is we are using more virtual um, virtual visits, more um, teaching virtually, more training virtually. Um, our all our staff have all been provided with you know handhelds all across the sector. Everyone has that kind of thing. So I I will say there has been some improvements for sure in in that um, both in terms of training recruitment. Um, it's a shift for all of us because we're used to home visits and we're not used to a, well we're not even in this format here. You know we're not used to a virtual uh, visit, but we have been having some real success, especially around therapy, um, working with a, a virtual model. So I think that definitely is open the door in the future for uh and and you know particularly an area that we service which is rural ontario you know sometimes we're driving for two hours just to get to the home and if we could do something virtually i think it makes a huge difference 
in terms of capacity and how many how many patients we can see for sure. So, and can you give us some examples of technology? I've seen some fascinating things, like you can turn off your loved one's stove remotely if you're worried about them with dementia. Uh, you can monitor, you can know if they are falling, et cetera. Are there other examples you can give us of practical technologies? Medication management that you can make sure they're taking their pills on time. You can make sure they're doing their exercises properly or, um, you know, training, um, just even checking in, like um, a lot of chronic disease management you know, how are things going, um, keeping track of, of um, diabetes and their blood sugars, that kind of thing. So I do think there's a lot of positives that have come up, come out of being forced to more virtual world for sure, for sure. I see Kelly's coming on to give us the hook, but I wanna ask you each one a quick last question. Uh, Samir, you, uh, you uh, use the expression, uh, how do you wanna live your last hundred yards? So I wanna finish on a personal note. I wanna ask each of you uh, experts in this field, how do you wanna live out your last hundred yards at home, in a long-term care home? Does it depend? Uh, Linda, what, what's your uh, hundred yard dash at the end? Well, of course, I, I'm a, I love home care. Um, it's a, to, to have someone as a, come into your home is um, very, very special. It allows you to stay where you are. So that's definitely where I would be. I'm like the bulk of Canadians. But in order to do that as a sector, we need stability and we need to do better in terms of making sure that the rest of the system can trust that home care is there for them and the patients. So um, so we have a long way to go to try to, to get that confidence back. And I hope we can, I hope we can get there. And Samir, hopefully it's many, many years away, but uh, what's your last hundred yards going to look like? Yes, well, three years into being a geriatrician, a friend of mine, uh, Lindsay Green, wrote this book called uh, The Perfect Home for a Long Life. And uh, so I edited it. And as I edited it, I made a housing decision. I moved from a two-story apartment to a one-story apartment. It's got two bedrooms, one for my future personal support worker um, and one for me, basically. Um, it's above a lovely restaurant, which I hope to get my meals on wheels from. And I'm just trying to save up enough money because I'm... I'm worried that, you know, 20 years or 30 years or 40 years from now, if I need home care and the government's not there for me, then I'm going to fund my own care. And so uh, uh, this is kind of how, like, honestly, like I, I am thinking about my future because I want to stay in my own home. I want to stay in my community. I love my neighborhood. Um, um, I want to be in charge of what I eat and, and what I do. But I also appreciate realistically that sometimes that plan won't work out. Um, but that's the plan I'm trying to strive for right now. And, uh, and uh, the funny last little thing was when I, I had to do a little renovation and the, uh, the contractor was saying, well, you want a door with Dr. Sinna that's uh, 24 inches. That's the standard. Why do you want 36 inches? And I said, look, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm 96 years old and I want to go write an angry letter in response to Andre Picard's latest <laughs> article, I want my wheelchair walker, which the international width, by the way, everyone is 32 inches, to fit through that doorway so I can go sit at my computer and type away what I want. So it's, again, thinking about what that future will look like and how you can enable it. Great. Well, I, I look forward to those angry letters in 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. Hopefully I'll still be working too. Uh, I thought it was a great, great way to end uh, autonomy, respect, dignity. That's what everybody wants as they age. And that's what our system should be aiming for. So uh, thank you, Linda Knight and uh, Dr. Samir Sinha. And I'll turn it back over to you, Kelly. Thanks. Thank you so much, Andre, and thank you also, Linda and Dr. Sinha. What a what a great conversation, so informative and revealing in, in lots of ways. And uh, I do appreciate, uh, Andre, as well, uh, your ability to get so many of the questions coming from the audience. And it's you know I'm sure there are uh, many many more that were received, and um, we appreciate everybody's engagement. I would like to now introduce Michael McFowl. Michael is a partner board member and national life sciences and healthcare leader at Deloitte. Deloitte is our lead event sponsor today, and he is going to deliver some closing remarks. Michael. Thank you very much, Kelly. Uh, what a fascinating discussion. And um, in concluding the session, I, I, on behalf of Deloitte as the lead sponsor for today's event, I'd really like to say a big thank you to the Empire Club for hosting it, to, to our two speakers, uh, Linda and uh, Dr. Samir and uh, also to Andre uh, in terms of the facilitator and moderator for the event. Uh, your insights were, were fantastic. I think the practical examples were excellent. Um, and uh, I take a lot away from today's discussion. The one thing that, uh, that I reflect on, two things that I reflect on, I'm a designated caregiver for my 93 year old mother who's in long-term care. 
And my mother-in-law is in long-term care with uh, pretty severe dementia. And the thing that stands out for me from this discussion is just um, how important this pandemic has been to underscore some of the challenges that we face in long-term care and for seniors overall. Uh, and from a personal perspective, um, reflecting on, on where I'm at, we're selling our house and building a bungalow, exactly as uh, Samir, you said, uh, thinking about living on one floor, the doors are, will be 34 to 36 inches wide, et cetera, et cetera, all for the same reasons. I'm still trying to figure out how to get a restaurant in my basement, but we'll, we'll sort that out at some point. Just before we go, and one last note, the Empire Club has kindly agreed to provide all registrants with a link to uh, Deloitte's latest paper, which is Making Canada the Best Place in the World to Age by 2030, um, a senior-centric strategy. So we look forward to sharing that with you. An email will come out um, and it will have uh, my contact information if you have any additional questions. So again, many thank you to everyone for, for taking part in today's uh, event and enjoy the rest of your day. Kelly, back to you. Thank you so much, Michael. And uh, thank you again to Deloitte for sponsoring the event today. Uh, thanks again once more to Linda and Andre, and Dr. Sinha. Coming up next at the Empire Club of Canada will be a panel discussion on the role of the aviation sector in Toronto's economic recovery. That's happening next week, July 15th at noon Eastern time. Registration is complimentary and available at empireclubofcanada.com. We hope you can join us for that discussion. Thank you again, and this meeting is now adjourned.